Before starting today's episode, we did want to note that our conversation is grounded in the topic of suicide and suicidal thoughts, and we wanted to make sure that all of our listeners are in choice before consuming this content, if it may become triggering for you or anyone around you while listening. This is the True North Collective podcast, a gathering of unsugarcoated conversations on authenticity, created by the real-life documentation of everyday humans fearlessly finding their true north. Welcome to season four of the podcast. Hi, I'm Rachel, and I'm loving walking at night to look at how bright the stars are. It's unreal. I am currently in the desert recording my first podcast from my RV, and I saw the inside of a dating app for the first time last week. Hi, my name is Megan. I am a cheer mom of two. I am a Rascal Flats fanatic, and I love hiking with my husband. Hi, my name is Janelle. My right boob is bigger than my left. I'm worried about my thinning hair, and I'm reclaiming my passion for videography and photography. And we are your hosts of the True North Collective podcast. We got it. (laughs) We did it. All right. So Rascal Flats, are you in general a big country fan or is it just them? So uh, just them. I have had them through my whole life's journey since I was introduced to them in 2000. I've gone to five of their concerts uh, four of them with my husband and he understands that Joe Don Rooney is my second husband and my pass. So that's been awesome. (laughs) And then, um, of course my twin sister had to one up me and meet them and has a picture with Joe Don Rooney. I've, I've gone to five concerts and I've never met them. So I literally call her a bitch every time I can, when I see that picture. I think we need to manifest this for you. Okay. And I didn't know you had a twin sister. Why does everyone from mind body have a twin? I don't know. I have an identical twin sister and we could not be more polar opposite. (laughs) Is that who you lived with in Washington? Yes. Yeah. Uh, I moved in with her. Mm -hmm. uh, And I didn't know she was your twin. How did I not know that? I don't know. Everyone at mind body had a twin. Really? Jess, Tony, Nick. You, that's like a high percentage of people that I hung out with that have a twin. That's a lot. That's a lot. Yeah. Maybe you're just attracting twins. (laughs) You know, I think I told this story in the podcast. I had a, like, this is so sad, but I had a twin and a survival of the fittest. (laughs) Janelle, I didn't know that. I didn't know that until I was like, in, I don't know, in my late teens, early 20s. Yeah, but I technically had a twin, which I think explains a lot like that. <laughs> it really does. So maybe, maybe that's well, it. I almost didn't have a twin. So when oh. we were born, we were born in February of 84, which was right after the outbreak of AIDS. And I, uh, we were born, my sister came out three minutes early or, you know, first And then I came out, I came out breach. So that was dangerous in and of itself. She came out white as a ghost and I came out red as a tomato because there's this thing called uh, blood transfer of twins. So essentially when she came out, all of her blood came to me 
and she had like barely any blood. So they were talking about um, giving her a blood transfusion, but they were terrified because of the AIDS outbreak with all of like the donated blood. So we have a big praying family. So they prayed over her and she like lived, thank goodness. But yeah, it was crazy. If you see pictures of us, even up to like six months old, you can see the difference of color in us. That's so wild. Yeah. Were you guys, you're not, are you from California originally? We were born in Fresno. Yeah. Fresno. Okay. Mm-hmm. I think I knew that. Yeah. So Megan, um, Rachel, for your knowledge, also lived in Wisconsin for a while. So that's always fun. She's like My one girls of the- were born in Mequon. Uh, yeah. yeah. I always love that because most people in California are like, where's Wisconsin? Yeah. <laughs> like Megan does. I like my two one or two people oh damn I didn't know okay super fun see this is why I love the podcast because I feel like I always learn new things about people that are so easy to like pass over and and day to day and then I'm like oh I had no idea facts Fun facts, I'll get ya. Taking a quick break to talk about The Collective. The Collective is our monthly community gathering where we focus on a different aspect of authenticity as a way to start a conversation and then we really just let it flow. This is an opportunity and space for people from all around the world to come together and get a more juicy reflection and connection on the topics that we're discussing in our monthly workshops, which are held the first Thursday of every month. The Collective will always be on the third Thursday of every month, and this is a free event. We would love to see you there, give you an opportunity to be witnessed, to be seen, to share real-time experiences. It's really just a mesh and a community of people coming together that are starting to dig into their own lives and, and figure out what finding their true north and living their true north means to them. We'd love to see you there. Link in the show notes to be able to sign up and then we'll share a Zoom link as the dates get closer. All right, let's jump back in. Cool. Well, we can go ahead and introduce you. So I'm really excited. Um, I've been hinting at it as we're going through, but I met Megan at my time during my time during Mind Body, and um, Megan works and worked in human resources at MindBody. And one of my absolute favorite things about Megan is just like how real you keep it and how honest. And that had been something as I got back into the corporate world, I like didn't really know how to bring my full self. And I still think I'm learning, but into my professional field. And I feel like you, Megan, were such an inspiration for that. Cause it's just like, you are bold, you're yourself, like regardless of what other people think. And I just think that is so refreshing and so many more people need to do that in the world. And then you're also very successful to pair with it. So I'm like, yes, like she's got something, she's figured it out, like she's doing it. How can I get a little bit of that? Um, So you are always an inspiration to me and you're just like a fucking great time (laughs) at my body. So um, Megan is also a beach body coach, which is really fun getting into movement and inspiring people through that and her own fitness journey, as well as a cheer coach and mother of two. So welcome to the podcast, Megan. Thanks for having me. Yeah, super excited to have you here. Welcome. Um, so what we can start out with is asking you the question, what does it look like to be Megan today? It looks a lot like being a mom and a full-time professional. 
I am super thankful because my husband and I chose many years ago when the girls started kindergarten that one of us would stay home and raise our kids and the other one would work. And I tried that when they were little babies and I hate to say it, but I didn't enjoy it as much as I thought I would. Um, and I think that has to do a lot with like us moving and not having like a friendship or support group. Um, but it's awesome to be able to really chase after my career and do the things that I love to do. Cause I love HR so much, um, that I don't know what I would do without it. I just like one of those things for me. Um, but I also love my family. And so it's really nice that I have flexibility with this new job to be able to, you know, we've got competitions on Mondays now instead of the weekends because of COVID <laughs> and I got to go do hair for three hours at two o'clock in the afternoon. So, um, that's kind of what it looks a lot like a lot of stress, a lot of just having to make sure that everything has been, um, touched, right? Like my family needs to get the best of me. My work needs to get the best of me. And it's hard to not have time for myself. So I've been trying really hard to have at least 30 minutes a day where I just do what I want to do. And I call it running from my demons. And so I've been literally running, um, blasting headphones for like 30 minutes every day for like probably the last week and a half, because I just, to me, I need that time of like not thinking and not being asked to do something. I love that. I am running from my demons. I think I said that at the big, like beginning of quarantine, I was like, oh, the demons are coming out of the closet. <laughs> like, Welcome everybody. Um, I also appreciate as a, a cheer mom, like you're <laughs> doing hair for multiple hours a day because I think you could probably have your own TV show right now on Netflix. So <laughs> put that out there. That would be amazing. Netflix, please pick me up. Right. Like, hey, I'm sure <laughs> someone from Netflix listens to this podcast. Uh, so <laughs> um, I would love to hear like a little bit more about um, your story as far as like educational background, how you got into HR. I know you moved around a lot for your jobs and mm -hmm. Um, and I think your, did your husband, he stayed home for a while with the kids too, right? While you worked? Yeah. So he's been home with the girls for at least the last seven years, which was super hard for him. Like think about being, so, you know, I married an older man and I, I love him to death. There is no age gap between us. Um, when there physically is, uh, but he, um, he had such a hard time with it because he's old school, right? Like he's like, I need to be the provider. I need to be the one out there doing the work. Why am I the one staying home? And in reality, he is like the most patient man I've ever met. Um, he's really good with our girls, gives them a good example of what a man should be for not only their mother, but for them. Um, and so he, you know, I think we were talking the other day and I was like, are you still uncomfortable or like feel shy when people ask you what you do and you say, I'm a stay at home dad. He's like, no, I embrace that shit now. <laughs> Love. Yeah. That's awesome. I I've always appreciated that too. Like when I found that out, I'm like, I don't know. I, that like the life and like the, the refreshing different perspective of like I said in your intro, like you just like going to work, I feel like as yourself and maybe correct me if I, if that's not how it was for you, but as an outsider, like I, that was my perspective on it. And then also when I 
first went to your house for I think one of your kids' birthday parties, um, being like, "Fuck yeah!" and like her hubby, like they're you know stay at home dad. And I'm just like, I fucking love this. Like, let's get like throw the fucking blueprint out and let's just do whatever makes sense for us. And that's what I feel like your life really as an outsider has has seemed to me. I have to say too, there's um, a lot of men in my life who actually talk to me about wanting to be stay-at-home dads. And like, they're like, I would prefer it that way. But there, it's also, it's not just the dynamic of the man, but also the woman who's like, um, you know, both, both, both sides have to wrestle with the, the role and who they actually want to be versus what society is telling them. It's interesting. No, hundred percent. I think, um, like I was mostly raised by my dad. So if I think back about my, like, you know, developmental years, I lived with my dad from fifth grade to 10th grade. And so to me, he taught me a lot of stuff about, sorry, I'm going to get choked up. <laughs> taught me a lot of stuff about, um, how to clean and like what to do. And so it was so awesome and refreshing to find my husband because I met him because, um, we both worked at Costco and I wanted, I was looking for a husband at the time. I'm not going to lie. I did not want to get married later than like 25. Um, and so I had a mission and I met him and I was attracted to him because he was such a provider and he was such of that person that I thought could protect me. And so that's what I was looking for. And over time throughout our relationship, you know, I was like, Hey, I don't like to be a stay at home mom. I need to talk to adults all day long. I can't just do this thing with the kids. I feel like I'm a bad mom. And when I went back to school and he could see the potential of the money that I could make, it was far outreaching what he could make. Right. So we decided, well, why does it make sense to keep it gender neutral as society would tell us it would be versus flipping it on its head and I going to work? And he's always had like a side gig, right? He's always done like um, some type of work on the side where he threw, you know, newspapers for a long time and, you know, did that whole thing. But it, it's very, uh, it's a very weird dynamic when you meet other people and they're like, well, what do you do? And I'm like, well, I work in HR. And they're like, well, what does your husband do? And I said, well, he stays home with the kids and they're just like freaked out about it. They're like, well, why, why do you want to do that? Like, I don't understand. And I'm like, well, it's what we choose to do. I don't tell you how to go pay your bills or how you have a mistress on the side, but you know, I just, to me, it, it makes a lot of sense. And so, um, it was hard. It was hard for him for probably the first five years. He had a hard time telling people that he stayed at home because it felt like demasculating to him. Like he wasn't enough, but I could care less. Like to me, I know how much money I make from like an hourly salary. Couldn't tell you how much money I have in the bank. I let him do all that stuff. And to me, you know, not hoarding the money and be like, well, this is how much allowance you get to me that works for us because I really don't care as long as the bills are paid and I can go buy myself a dress every now and then I don't give a shit what the money does. You know what I mean? So it's just, it's an interesting dynamic where society thinks that you have to have the woman staying home and the man providing, but don't really understand that it could work in different circumstances. I love that. And I think for your, like your two girls too, like you had said from your own experience, I just think that'll be really, I don't know, really refreshing for them. And like when they go out and if they choose to date, 
even, you know, men or whoever they date, who knows, but like, if they do, like, I think a lot of times just having that influence is, I don't know, I think it makes people such like a cool, unique and like more grounded, like adult human too. So I appreciate that for them. Yeah. And I think it's, it's awesome because I had a very, um, complex relationship with my father. I loved him very much. Uh, but he, you know, he was the kind of dad that taught me how to cook and clean. I had to have food on the table at five 30 every day. If it was not on the table, it was packaged up for him and put in the microwave until he got home. There was expectations that were set. Right. And he always taught me never do something half-ass or just don't do it at all. Like if you're not going to go 110% into something, just don't even waste your time doing it. So that's like stuck with me. Um, but he also was very absent. Like he did his own thing. He was, you know, he had a sickness. He was addicted to a lot of different things and didn't know how to raise girls. Right. He was given two girls (laughs) and a boy. And he's like, I know how to deal with this boy. I don't know how to deal with these girls. So I remember, you know, in the fifth grade getting out of the shower and he'd brush my hair like a boy. And I'm like, (laughs) this is really interesting. So it's nice for me to see that there's a dad in my girl's life who actually is an active dad. He's an active participant. They go to him for advice, which is more than I could have ever asked for. So super appreciative of that. How does he play in the cheer world? Oh my God. He's the best cheer dad in the world. So he'll have like his, you know, we, we have a cricket. So I made him a shirt. He'll wear his game day shirt. And I'm that mom that's like, you know, both my girls are flyers. And so I have high expectations of my kids and tumbling. They're just really good at it. Um, but every time I'm sitting there, I'm going stick it. All right. Straight legs the whole time they're in the routine. And he's sitting there going, great job, girls. You're doing a fantastic job. And I'm just like, (laughs) so I'm the hard ass and he's like the motivator, but he's really good. And he'll sit there and he'll critique things. And he's starting to understand the logo or like not the logo, but the, you know, the language, thought process, yeah. With, yeah, the language, because he's a football player. So he's just like, you know, football and baseball. And he's like, I wanted a boy. And I'm like, sorry, I want to stop it too. <laughs> but it's been fun. That's really cool. I think it's, you know, I don't have kids, but when I play in competitive club volleyball, like, my parents were always so goofy about it and we had to travel a lot, like, which I know you guys do too. So like similar. And I feel like my parents would just get bored and do like the most random things at the games. Like I played for a team called the Penguins once. And one of the moms like kind of similar to like, we're going to give everyone a shirt and everyone's going to have a shirt that has a letter on it. And it's going to spell penguins. And we're going to stand on the sidelines. We're going to cheer. Da, da, da. And my dad, like during between one of the games, he's like standing there and, you know, there's all these adults running around with these shirts with letters on it. And he's like, huh. and then my dad learns that you can spell penis with the letters from penguins oh my so God. he's like on the sidelines like all right ladies because like he was basically <laughs> one of the only dads there he's like line up this way and then he's like spells penis and then, like the raps at the game they're like you guys gotta disperse disperse you know it's like i was like 15 like which, like 15 14 and 13 year olds playing like club volleyball my dad's getting all these women wearing shirts to spell out penis on the sideline i'm like oh my god what is happening that's the most amazing story I've ever I, heard. <laughs> dude, 
I need to meet your dad. I feel like he and I are kindred spirits. <laughs> Probably. My my parents are, yeah, they're they know how to make things fun. They know how to make fun out of nothing. <laughs> so they're like the parents that would be at a serious banquet, like handing out awards, and they'd be like, I don't even know, laughing in the back, like and just like uncontrollably couldn't stop. And people are like, why? Like, what is happening back there? Like, shh, my kid's about to go out and they're just like crying in the back. Just like, yeah, that's probably where maybe I get some of my own. That's <laughs> such a good saying. characteristic to have though, because you can't like be serious all the freaking time. There's gotta be some type of like, you know, camaraderie or humor that goes along with it. For sure. We have, uh, we have many uh, stories from, from club volleyball of that. Like there was also a lot of vodka and water bottles and I got left at a gas station once. <laughs> I was like, we could go into those for another time. <laughs> <But> <laughs> some good times. <laughs> um, but we could start to transition into what we, we had chatted about, like actually coming on the podcast for, which was having a conversation of really just like normalizing and, and chatting about depression and postpartum depression and anxiety and like how so many of us experience it specifically with 2020. I feel like if anyone hadn't experienced it, they probably started to maybe in 2020. Um, and so I would love to hear like a little bit of your like journey of where you first experienced it, where you became aware of it. We are interrupting the podcast to let you know about the Creative Business Accelerator course from Meg's Colleen, who is a life coach and a creative consultant, also a friend of ours from the internet that we've had the opportunity to swap podcasts with. In this Accelerator course, you can expect to break down big business difficulties, shift your mindset, and rise as the powerful human you already are. You are going to use a bit of neuro-linguistic programming, a dash of marketing, and the power of collective energy alongside so many more delicious strategies and tools. I have always wanted to be able to say this. We have our own promo code for this course. The promo code is TRUENORTH, all one word, and you'll get an extra $100 off the full price option and it's valid through May 31st. So we will drop a link in the show notes as well as that promo code if you are interested in joining Meg's and her community. Awesome, let's jump back in. So if I'm honest, as a kid, I could feel anxiety. I just didn't know what it was. I just felt like you know how you can go on a roller coaster ride and you go all the way up and then you come all the way down like super fast? that's how my stomach felt when I was like scared or I was uncertain. I had a very different upbringing. I went to five different elementary schools, two different high schools. I was, I moved around an awful lot with having divorced parents. Um, and in the middle of that, you know, my, uh, my mom was taking care of my grandma who had what they used to call manic or bipolar disorder. And my mom also has bipolar disorder. Didn't know about it until I was in my early twenties, um, when she got help. So obviously there's, you know, statistics around that, that I would get something. Um, but it really started for me after I had my first daughter. I mean, I, I remember being so excited to meet her and like just the adrenaline of like, Oh my God, I'm going to have a baby. This is going to be amazing. And I have her 
And I'm at home with her for like, I don't know, my first week, two weeks. And every time I would lay her down in the crib or I would take baths with her, I would literally, I don't know about like third eye or whatever, but I would see a vision of me legit killing her, which was terrifying. Like I would be in the bathtub and I would be like, well, what would happen if I just like put her underneath the water? Right. And then like in my mind, when I'd lay her down and she'd be like in her little jammies and look so cute. And I put her down, literally saw myself killing her with a shotgun. I mean, like legit scary shit that nobody talks about. I was terrified to tell my husband I had only been with him for five years. And I'm like, somebody's going to fucking lock me up because this is not normal. Right. So you're supposed to go to like a, I think it's four weeks or six weeks after you have a baby, you go back to your doctor and I felt really comfortable with her. And I was like, Hey, I'm having these visions and I don't know what they are, but I'm terrified. And I'm telling you right now, I don't want to kill my baby. Like, I don't want to do those things, but I'm scared of what my brain's telling me. And she got me, um, with this amazing woman named Rose, who was like postpartum, like guru. She knew everything about postpartum. And that was the first time I'd ever heard of it. Like no one had ever told me any stories about postpartum depression. I knew about depression and manic depression, but not postpartum. And they were like, well, here's all the medicine that you need to take. So here's some Zoloft and here's some, you know, Xanax and all this stuff. And I'm like, we all need to take it. Right. Cause I'm like, anything that's going to make me stop having these visions is going to be a blessing. So I start taking the Zoloft and I increased my anxiety. So they tell me it's supposed to decrease it. It increases. They tell me, I want you to take the Xanax, but it's very addictive. I had an addictive dad. I didn't want to get on drugs and start being addicted to things like he was. So I legit was like, I can't take this medication. I need to understand what coping skills are. Like, what does that even mean? Like define that for me. So I started, you know, doing different things. So I, I stopped taking the medication. They were like all against it. They're like, you have to take this medication. It's only going to help you. And I'm like, I go, listen, if I have to take something that's making me feel worse, why would I, that does not make any sense. That's like the definition of insanity. Um, and so I would go and they would be like, okay, well, if you have a panic attack. So what I was experiencing was not only those visions of killing my baby, I had experienced panic attacks. So I used to love to drink wine. My favorite pastime can't do it anymore. Like makes me so sad every single day. Even to today. Yeah. I love the taste of it. Um, but I can't because every time I take a sip, I, and start to feel buzzed. I go into straight panic mode. My whole body gets super hot. I feel like I can't breathe. My heart races like super fast. Um, so they, you know, the doctors would be like, well, if you feel like that and you live in Wisconsin and it's snowing outside, just go outside and just like shock your body. I'm like, oh, that sounds like a great idea. <laughs> so I go Me. outside and I'd shock my body and I'd sit in the snow and I'd be like, okay, I can actually like breathe again. Like this is okay. So, you know, fast forward to, you know, many years later where I have another traumatic experience of uh, my dad passing away, um, moving, you know, with work and like being in a new environment. 
and I come back <clears throat> to, you know, I moved from California to Arizona and then Arizona back to California. And the first time in my life, I had a full on panic attack in an airplane where I could not calm myself down before I'd have panic attacks and I could calm myself down. <laughs> I went from San Luis Obispo to Phoenix, which is like, I think an hour and 45 minute flight with executives that I used to work with to boot on the freaking flight with me and panic attack the whole time. Couldn't breathe. I'm like sitting there eyes closed with like fanning my face with like whatever brochure they had to like get myself to calm down. Cause I was like terrified that they were going to like do an emergency landing <laughs> somewhere. I'm like, I just want to get home. <laughs> So, uh, you know, I had that experience. And then when I came back to San Luis Obispo, I call it the meltdown. Uh, but I legit could not, I, I could not go to work. Um, I was crying uncontrollably all the time. I felt like I couldn't breathe. I felt like I had a huge, like knot in my chest and I did not want to like, I drive cars. I did not want to drive my car. I did not want to go outside. I didn't want to go into like anywhere that had more people than the people in my household, um, which was really scary for me because I'm like, something's terribly wrong with me and no one wants to help me. Like I would go to the doctor and be like, can you please give me something that's going to help? And at that time, you know, they gave me Xanax because my dad just passed away. And so that's what they give everybody when they have the grieving, you know, here's some Xanax. <laughs> so I took the Xanax, but it was like the lowest dose. And so when I took it, I was like, well, that's not working. So then it would freak me out even more. I'm like, this is supposed to calm me down and I'm not calming down what's happening. So it would just continue to escalate. Um, and I finally got on board with this really awesome um, psychiatrist when I started like my outpatient program. I did an outpatient program for like, I want to say eight weeks or something. Um, but, you know, imagine going and having a conversation with your boss and saying, I legit cannot work right now. I don't know what's wrong with me. You know, this has been nine months since my dad passed away. <clears throat> I have a lot of stress at work. I'm doing a lot of things at work that I love, but can't do it. And, you know, I loved my previous boss and I thought the world of her, but if you've never experienced something like that personally, or you've had somebody close to you experience those things, you can't have empathy or sympathy because you literally have never had that experience. And so it was hard for me because I felt I felt like I was being judged a lot. I felt like I couldn't, um, you know, like how could, how could anybody want me to continue to rise in the HR world when she literally just had a fucking meltdown and like, can't do her job. Like what if we give her more stress? Right. So that I felt like that was a, a piece there for me that I just was always uncomfortable with. Um, but, you know, I was able to take the 12 weeks off and like really have time with my family, which is, you know, I started meditating every day, which was super helpful. I started doing yoga. Um, but, you know, it's hard because nobody wants to talk about the naturopathic way of healing and doing the hard work of healing or exposure therapy. They just want to throw pills at you. So to me that I think that was really difficult because I didn't 
I didn't want to take the pills. I didn't want to do the way that they were telling me. I knew that there had to be a different way. I just didn't know what that way was. So when I went to that outpatient program, I learned a lot about coping skills, how to, you know, they say that you have a parrot and then you want to put the little um, blanket over the parrot's cage to make it shut up because in your mind, it's telling you constantly, you're not good enough. Why do people like you? You know, um, you think you know what you're talking about and you don't. And then the there's people in real life who say those crazy things to you. And then you're just like, Oh my God, you know, it's, it's correct. Like I am, I'm a loser. Like why would anybody want to talk to me? And it just like spirals down super quick to where you're just like in this desperate place. And it's a scary place to be. I mean, in your head is probably the scariest place to be in the whole world because you can, you can make changes in your brain. Like you can, you can tell yourself all of the positive affirmations that you want, but if you let it take over in negativity, it's like, it's such a desperate place. So. Yeah. I mean, that's why I feel like so many people, if you don't have those skills, which we're really never taught them, like, and I think that's starting to change hopefully. And maybe you can see that like with your kids in school, depending on where they are, but like, I don't know. I think most of us haven't been taught that and we don't know how to deal with it. So we do numb out, whether it be, you know, getting like a prescription and, and again, like if a prescription pills work for you in the mental health world, like, fuck yeah, take them. But for a lot of people, they don't, or we're, we're just like drinking every night or watching TV or like finding other ways to get out of our head because we don't know how to cope and we don't know how to handle it. But then I mean, for me, until I started to address it and like, you don't really get out of that cycle though, either of being just like, all right, well, I can't, I don't have any skills to cope with it. So I'm just going to numb out. But once the numbing, like, you know, wears off then I'm kind of right back to where I started. Um, yeah. So it's kind of like that, definitely that vicious, vicious cycle. But I also applaud you for like trusting yourself too. And like realizing you know, not just being like handed something being like, okay, this, this works. This is what the doctor's telling me. You're like, this actually doesn't work. You're paying attention to your own body. And you're like, well, I want to find a way that does work for me. Because I think a lot of times, like you said, it's like, you trust your doctors, you trust these people. And again, maybe that worked really well for someone else, which is great, but you know, you better than they know you. So like you didn't outsource your power and your own knowledge to them. Like you actually paid attention and were like, Hey, this actually doesn't work for me. What, what else can we do? Yeah. And I think that was like really important. I mean, I, um, you know, when I was in my early twenties and, you know, loved to go out to the bars, I think I would go out to the different bars, follow it every single, you know, Monday through Friday, you go to like the sports bar, and then you go to the saloon and like all these different things. And that was so much fun for me. And I never to me, I never had a drinking problem, because I was a happy drunk, I was the, you know, somebody that people wanted to be around, I wasn't beating the shit out of people or like telling them that they sucked all this kind of stuff. So that was fun for me. But then you know, when I, when it came down to taking any type of synthetic drug, right? Like never wanted to try cocaine and especially not meth because, you know, my dad liked to make and sell that shit. So I was staying away from it. Uh, but 
you know, I just didn't want to put something in my body that was going to either change the way that I felt or numb it because I had many conversations with my dad where I would beg him to stop doing drugs. And I would say, let's get help. Let's like figure this out. I mean, I remember sitting in the hospital with him when they told him that he wasn't going to make it and he made it. And I was like, let's go your VA. Like, let's go to the VA hospital. Let's get some help. And he, his words were, Megan, I've been doing this stuff for over 50 years. I cannot stop. Literally it's in my body. I cannot stop. So to me, I was heartbroken by that response because his addiction had taken over his identity. It had taken him over so much and he had had so much pain and you know, when we were little, he had his, a very successful electric business and was doing some really cool things with it, but he couldn't get off of cocaine. He just couldn't do it. Um, we had lots of people say like, we'll send you where the, you know, where the celebrities go and like, we can get you help that way. And he just, he couldn't do it because he physically was doing it since he was 10 years old. When he went to the army, they used to give him speed, you know, and they don't want to talk about that, but they do that to our soldiers. Um, and, and he could, you know, when he was growing up in the fifties, sixties, he could go buy speed over the counter at the pharmacy at Rite Aid, you know what I mean? Walmart or Walgreens, whatever. Um, so it was so much a part of his life that he just could not get over it. And I didn't want to ever feel that way. I'm like, how sad is it that you have to have this white powder or this white substance or something to really make you who you are? And I was terrified of that. I didn't want, I did not want to show up that way for myself. I didn't want to show up that way for my kids. So I looked at everything. I, I would research, like, what can I do to help? You know, there's exposure therapy, but as I started, you know, when I went out for this 12 weeks, when I was working at mind body, um, I was super grateful for that time with my family. I was super grateful for that time to understand who I was, what I liked, what I didn't like what I could do for myself, because really, uh, the thing that I found through this journey is you, you are the only person that can save yourself. You're the only person in this world that's going to literally save you. So when I realized that and realized I couldn't go to the hospital, they couldn't do anything for me. You know, they'd be like, well, your anxiety, here's some Xanax. It's going to be fine in a couple days. Right. But when you find out that like, you know, when your heart is pounding so fast and it's scary because it feels like you just ran a a race and you didn't, you just been laying in bed thinking about something. And all of a sudden your heart's pounding all, you know, crazy. It's really empowering to be able to calm yourself down. Like I've gone to where my heart was probably like in the one seventies and I've literally calmed it down just with my thoughts and my breath, which is super empowering, but terrifying at the same time, because you're like, okay, this goes longer than 30 seconds. You know, I have to go to the doctor and it's like two minutes. And there's been times where I walk downstairs and I'm like, Jonathan, my husband, uh, I can't get my heart to go down. Like, I, I think I need, I think I might have to go to the hospital. And he knows, you know, cause he's been <laughs> through this journey with me and he's like, it's going to be okay, honey. Like, And I'll, sometimes I'll lay on his chest and listen to his heartbeat. And that's like the only way I can calm down. 
Um, but you know, it is terrifying in the moment because you feel like you're dying. And I had to really wrestle with that because, you know, I grew up Pentecostal. I grew up a Christian. I really believe in God. I know that there's, um, there's a heaven. I've seen that, you know, I've seen things that make me believe that. Um, but you know, I don't want to go see Jesus. I need to raise my kids. You know, (laughs) I want to see them grow up. I want to see them have babies. I want to see them get married, you know? So that's a, that's a terrifying place to be, but, um, being able to use coping skills. Like my, I have this really awesome girlfriend. Her name's Mara. We call her anti-mermaid because she loves mermaids. And, um, she went to Mexico and she taught mindfulness to middle schoolers. And I'm like, what are you doing? Like, let's talk about this because here's the program that I'm going through and it's teaching me all these coping skills. And she's teaching these coping skills to these, you know, little middle schoolers. And I'm like, please let's do this more in the school. Like this needs to be normalized because nobody teaches people coping skills. And that's why we have so many fucked up adults because they don't know how to cope. They know how to cope with substance, you know, give me a shot of tequila, you know, give me some meth, like whatever, that's how they cope. And they're not finding the root cause. Every time you grab a substance, you're numbing yourself and you're not allowing yourself to feel those feelings because it's hard. It hurts. It's scary. It doesn't feel good, right? Like we, we don't want to not feel good, but if we can take that space and show up there and say, you know what, this fucking sucks. I don't want to go to the hospital. I mean, there's been literally many nights where I have counted my breath. I have my hand on my heart and a hand on my tummy. And I'm like counting my breath, just praying to go to sleep because when I'm sleeping, I'm at peace. It's the only time I don't feel freaked out. Um, But, you know, those are the hard things. And as humans, we don't want to do the hard things. But if we do those hard things and we can get on the other side it's so much better because now we've just proven to our brain and we're creating these new, you know, neuro pathways that, you know, reaching for coffee, a caffeinated coffee used to be terrifying for me. I used to be like decaf everything, please no caffeine. Um, and now I can drink a, a caffeinated coffee. And when I have a panic attack or if I feel anxiety over it, I tell myself, we need this coffee today. we got a lot of shit to get done and just chill out just chill out, Megan. It's going to be okay. Uh, but you know, a lot of people don't want to do the hard work and it fucking sucks. (laughs) Yeah. I, yeah. The one acknowledgement that it's hard work. So I don't know if you and I have talked about this, but like early 2020, um, Rachel and I, and a few of our friends, we were like, okay, we've been talking about how much we don't, want to drink anymore and it like has no place in our life but yet we still do it um and so we decided to basically like stop drinking I mean like I'll be honest I had like a couple drinks in 2020 but for the most part like you know didn't stop doing it and um for me like you had mentioned like drinking was always just a way of numbing out like it I would do it if I were lonely. I would do it if like I couldn't handle a big emotion. And um, like, I wasn't even really like, yes, I was a social drinker because there's the side that drinking is so ingrained in society and you know, what people want to do in our activities. So like, yes, I was a social drinker, but at the same time, like more of what I was concerned about was the fact that 
a bottle of wine at the end of the night was a requirement, a reward, a way to turn my mind off, like super similar. Um, specifically when I was really stressed, like I used to basically, when I was running the fitness studio, like I was working like a million hours a week, seven days a week. Um, and like, that was my, pro- I would be like, I would get drunk and be like, again, okay, I can't work. You know, that was like the only like time I wouldn't work. Cause I was like, well, I just drank a bottle of wine, can't work now. And even <laughs> drinking the bottle of wine while I'm working, I'm like, you've crossed the threshold. You can put the computer away. Um, which is obviously not, not a great thing to do. Um, but what, as I've like kind of gone on this journey and I've stopped numbing, um, and I still like still do another day, like I still use food sometimes when I'm unhappy and I'm like trying to get something, but I've really started to explore like if I'm experiencing anxiety or I'm experiencing an emotion, getting curious about it and like what's actually happening here. Cause I think a lot of times we can say like, oh, anxiety is bad because it is, it's super fucking uncomfortable and it's not pleasant um, or feelings of sadness are bad, but it's like, okay, rather than saying they're bad, like they might be uncomfortable, they might be hard, but like, rather than saying they're bad, like, how can we check in and be like, well, what is my body trying to tell me right now? Like, is there something out of alignment in my life? Like, do I need to make a change? Like my body's literally just giving me data and information right now. Um, so for example, I think I was texting you and Lydia at some point saying my anxiety was like really, really high. And I also was just like, I got to fix this. I got to fix this. Like there's something wrong. Right. Um, but kind of just sitting with it and getting curious and realizing that there was a relationship in my life that was causing a lot of anxiety and stress. And like, it was a normal way for my body to react, but it was also letting me know that like something wasn't right in my life. And not that I needed to necessarily make a change in that moment to fix the anxiety, but like using that as data to when I was ready to make like a more informed decision. So I don't know. I think there's like different levels of anxiety and and depression, obviously, like there's more chronic, there's, you know, something that you can hit a root source, but does that spark anything in your own journey? Yeah. So, you know, my, uh, Jonathan is, super, you know, in intuitive and, um, and thinks through things. And I learn a lot from him. Um, but you know, you have to, you know, for me, I, um, I have a lot of faith in God. So I have prayed over myself a lot and I was like, God, please take this away from me. I don't want this anymore. Like, I don't know why I have it, but I'd like it to go away. And obviously it's not going away because it's a cross I have to bear, right? It's something I have to, to wrestle with or rumble with. Um, but I find that if I am scared of it, like if I get a panic attack or I have something happen to me and I'm like scared of it and I'm like, oh, this needs to go away right now. It's far worse than accepting it. Once I started accepting it and saying, okay, this is what my body's doing. My, my fingers are going numb. Now my hands going numb, my whole arms going numb. And of course it's always your left arm. So you think you're having a freaking heart attack. Um, but you know, when my hands go numb, that's a trigger for me that I'm hyperventilating and I don't realize it. So I'm taking too much oxygen in, not enough carbon uh, dioxide is coming out. So you're hyperventilating. Um, 
And so I have to sit there and like literally finger breathe. So I breathe, you know, in and out one finger and I go all the way through 10, but you have to sit with it. You have to make it feel uncomfortable and you have to sit there and think, okay, I'm accepting this. My body needs a chill moment. I'm obviously, you know, going a thousand miles an hour and my body doesn't like that. I've got too much stress coming in, not enough relaxation time. So you have to really think like, what are the things that, that bring you joy there? The the worst thing, it, it wasn't that I was having visions of killing my baby. It wasn't that, you know, I had, uh, this horrible panic attack. What the, the worst thing for me was, is that it stole my joy. I, I love to laugh. I love to be silly with people. And I wasn't that way. I was serious all the time. I was freaked out all the time. I didn't want to talk to anybody because I didn't think anybody knew how I was feeling or could relate to me. And it's still my joy. And so I remember calling my mom multiple times crying and just saying like, I don't understand. Like I I never wanted to kill myself, but I had thoughts of suicide multiple times, which were terrifying because it wasn't that I wanted to kill myself and like end it. It was that it felt relieving, right? People talk about, you know, they're at such a bad space that they want to kill themselves. And I have, I've had multiple friends that I've gone to high school with that are no longer here. They didn't even make it to 35, you know, because life was so hard. And I felt so sad for those people because I knew what that desperation felt like. And I didn't reach out to people. So to me, I want people to understand, like, there is more people that are dealing with depression, anxiety, multiple, you know, mental health, or what we're going to call invisible disabilities, that people just think, you know, well, Megan's got her shit together because of X, Y, Z. And it's like, Megan actually doesn't have her shit together. She fucking tries hard every single day. Um, but yeah, you, you have to sit with it. You have to give yourself grace and you have to find those little moments of joy. I mean, my mom used to tell me, you know, I go outside and I water my plants. They moved to Indiana, her and her husband, because his family lives over there. And she goes outside. She's like, I'm watering my plants. So I need you, Megan, I need you to find one joyful thing. And so to me, what was my joy? It was letting the sun hit my skin, right? If I could feel the sun on my skin, I knew I was still alive. So I'm like, how can I, rather than, you know, I never wanted to kill myself because that was terrifying to me. I'm, I was afraid of death. Right. (laughs) Um, but to me, I, I had to sit with it. I had to really, you know, curiosity is a great word because you have to be curious about it. Like, what is it? Why is this happening? What am I doing in my life that this is starting to really show itself? Like, what can I start doing to make this not as frequent because we're always going to sit with it. Anxiety is good because it tells us how to get the fuck out of danger, right? Like if there's a creepy guy watching me walk to my car, it's going to help me figure that shit out. Right. But it's not helpful when I'm sitting watching a video with my kids and my husband. And it's like, you got to get the hell out of here. This is not a good place to be. This is dangerous. (laughs) Yeah. I actually, I like that call out because again, I've labeled my anxiety bad a lot, but I also think it's a part of my intuition. Like when people talk about being intuitive, it like it is like I experience anxiety as a signal and a sign 
like you said, that something's awry and like, it doesn't have to always be like physically, like you had mentioned someone following you to your car, which is a great time to be anxious. But even like, if I've had anxiety in like romantic relationships, normally it is because there's something going on there. Like you don't feel safe. And like, so it's, it, yeah, I, I've tried to reframe it in my mind too, is definitely um, like more, I don't know, gift is like, oh, it's a gift, you know, but like more of a gift, <laughs> more of a gift, even though I hate experiencing it. There's a book that I am listening to right now and I can't, I think it's called The Language of Emotions. Um, and it actually speaks to emotions being on a spectrum where at the extreme end, it is where you feel like that, that it's so intense. It feels so uncomfortable. I mean, uncomfortable and intense doesn't even feel like it acknowledges how terrible it actually feels. Um, but in a flow, when you can drop into a flow state, those, those emotions, the fear, the sadness, um, actually are how we tap into, they are intuition, they are wise. Um, but it's like that spectrum of, is it in a flow space right now, or is it in a survival space right now? Um, and so I've been playing with that quite a bit. Cause I think you're, you're at least that's what this book has said, Janelle is like a very similar sentiment. Um, which has kind of helped me to not all of a sudden be afraid when I am and even fear of being afraid of the fear then too. It's like a interesting spiral. But I, I also wanted to just say how impressed I am with you, Megan, um, with your ability to be able to, objective is the word that is coming up for me in terms of it, it like for you to go to your husband and say, hey, I think I might have to go to the hospital right now. Like that juxtaposition, like that contrast of like being able to just own that and not be like, oh my fucking God, oh my God. Like, and to be able to just own it and be like, hey, we might have to do this. And I don't know if she said it that calmly, but um, I don't know. That's huge. I just want to, I just want to acknowledge you because there's certainly a lot of things in my life that, um, I have not been able to show up that way and what type of support could have met me there to keep practicing owning the, the terror um, in a way that didn't dump it on somebody else. Those are my words. Um, so I, I'm just your presence right now and your ability to be you and share this in such a grounded way um, is how I'm receiving it is um very inspiring for me. It's a expanding me. So thank you. Oh, I appreciate that. It's hard. I mean, you know, you, you get into a relationship with somebody and it's like 50% that it's going to work out. Right. Then you get married and then it's even worse. So, um, I am forever grateful for the support and the acceptance that my husband gives me because I could not imagine being married to somebody or being this close to somebody going through these experiences and feeling judged or feeling like it's not real or telling me that it's all in my head, right? Like those are unfair. Those are, those are people that are not being fair to you. Um, and so if you have those relationships, seek somebody who loves you, seek a best friend, seek a parent, somebody that 
you can be real with because it is, it's scary. I mean, how scary is it to tell your husband that your brand new baby, you want to kill it. Right. And then to tell him not even eight years later that you're thinking of suicide. I mean, if I was married to somebody like that, I don't know how I would respond. It would be terrifying. Right. But he has been so grateful and um, just gracious. And, and I did, I, you know, I, I walked downstairs cause I was in my head and I'm like, I have to tell him that I think I need to go to the hospital. And I'm like, babe, I, you know, my heart is not stopping. It's continuing to pound. I think something's wrong. I'm going to need to go to the hospital. And he knows as well as I do, they're not going to help you because I've literally, when I moved to Washington, went to urgent care and said, I need something. I don't care if it's Xanax. I'm not like a, you know, pill pusher, but people have abused that system so much that they don't even give it. So I had a nurse practitioner come in and tell me, well, even if you go to the ER, we can't give you anything. You have to get a, a doctor, a primary doctor to help you. And it took three months to get into a primary doctor to help me in that moment. And so I, in my, my mind, I'm like, okay, babe, you can only help yourself. Like, what are you going to do? That's not going to be scary. And what's the worst that can happen? You die. And now you're with Jesus. Like who fucking cares, right? Like you die. That's the worst thing that could happen. Your, your kids are taken care of your husband's taken care of. Like that's all it is. So I had to really realize that death wasn't the end for me. It was, I have to grapple with death. I have to be accepting of death and it's going to be okay if I die when I die and everybody's going to be okay. I don't have to protect them. They're, they're going to be totally fine. But when you're terrified of death in those moments of panicking and anxiety and fear, it's terrifying. You know, when I was at MindBody, I had multiple executives that came to me and said, what you're doing is so important. Like, I can't take time off, right? Because I'm an executive, so I can't take time off and help myself. But I also deal with these things. I also, you know, cope in these different ways. And I helped an executive get through a very spiraling situation by just talking you know, sitting with him and talking with him. And to me, that was uh, eye-opening because I always put these executives on this pedestal, like, God, I would never be able to be an executive because I'm a fucking nut job, right? Like nobody's going to want me to be an executive. And then I see these executives that are like, Megan, you're helping me in so many ways you have no idea. And that was, that was one of the most precious moments I, I think I, I could have because the more you open up about your story and you tell your symptoms and how you feel and all these different things, people come out of the woodwork and they're like, I had no idea you were dealing with this. When I would see you, you know, I had one of my girlfriends tell me when I would see you tapping your feet on the ground in executive meetings or, you know, uh, touching your fingers, I had no idea you were working through a panic attack. Right. So like when I came back to work and I was in a meeting with, I don't know, 15 executives and I had to like keep my shit together. There was times where I was panicking so bad. I could feel like it was a movie, like it was not real. And I felt like I was going to pass out at times. <laughs> and so being able to talk those things through with, you know, people that we trust and know that are not going to be judging. And I kind of just got to a realization with myself that like, even if people judge me, that's okay. Those are not my people. Those are not the people that I want to associate with. 
I want to associate with people that are accepting, that are loving and can, I can be myself with them, regardless of how I'm feeling. I can be with them on my good days and on my bad days. And that to me has been the greatest gift because I have a very small circle. (laughs) I don't need a lot of friends, but those small circles are people that I can tap into. Like, even if I don't talk to Janelle, you know, for a year, I know I could call her up and be like, Hey girl, these are things that I'm experiencing and I need help right now. And, you know, I have that with probably five people in my whole life. And, and I think that that's good, but you know, we have to stop being afraid of talking about it because why would we, you know, if I had a disabled arm, like I had my arm cut off, right. I was amputated. We would talk about that. That's something that we'd be like, Hey, Megan, you need to go heal your body. Cause you just had your whole arm taken off your body. But when our brain's not working right, or, you know, we are afraid of the things that are happening in our body because of the symptom of our brain, we we're afraid to talk about it. And it's, you know, one of the best things that I, when I was at uh, the outpatient program, they told me, Megan, if you had a broken leg, would you sit down and like not walk on it? And I'm like, well, of course, like it's a broken leg. I can't, I can't go hobbling around. I need to like put it up to rest it so that I can start walking again. They're like, that's what's happening to your brain right now. Your brain is broken in a way we need to patch it up. We need to heal it by utilizing coping mechanisms, by meditating, by doing exercise, these different things. Um, And I was like, well, yeah, that makes sense. But it still didn't make sense about my brain. <laughs> you know, it still doesn't make sense at times. So we just have to, we have to figure out how does that, you know, how do, how would we react if we had a broken leg or a broken limb and put that same treatment plan uh, when we're talking about, you know, burnout or anxiety or depression. I'm really excited to share that the third episode of That Girl Got Ghosted, my YouTube series where I take Tinder dates into haunted hotels, is live. You can check it out. We'll drop a link in the show notes. If you haven't heard me talk about it before, this has really been an experiment and an opportunity for me to hone in on my video editing skills, but That Girl Got Ghosted is a mashup of The Bachelor ghost adventures and catfish all in one. It's fun. It's silly. It's cute. It's a little spooky, but in the best sort of way. I would love to have you all check it out. This episode, I am in Bisbee, Arizona with Cam, a video editor from Denver, Colorado. I was going to say, even if you then apply the support system onto that as well, which I really appreciated the call out of like, because at first you're like, people will show up. And for me, I would say that I haven't necessarily always felt like people have shown up. Um, and they have actually started to now. And so I I was going to add like, and if they aren't showing up, don't give up. (laughs) Like They will. And, and so then if you apply that support structure, even to the broken leg, it's like you, we ask for help for like, Hey, will you go get me that you know, make me some hot water for tea. I mean, that's the dumbest example. I'm just looking at a tea thing right now, but like, you know, you ask for support for the things that you need when you have that broken leg, because you can't walk and the ability to like continue to, um, I mean, I guess, continue to ask for what you need, even when it seems like I should be able to get through this or whatnot. I'm kind of rambling because I'm, 
I your, your presence I, is like hitting me so in the heart. I've almost cried like three times as you've been talking and in like a very empowering way. And um, I'm just, I'm really, I'm just going to let it flow. Like, I'm so grateful that you are sharing your story. And I haven't had the same experiences that you have, but there is a deep relatability in your ability to just own King towards right now. And it is um, breathtaking for me. So just thank you so much. Just thank you. Oh, well, thank you for letting me share my story. I'm like getting choked up now too. It's hard, you know, it's hard when you're living in the in the moment of all of these things happening. And you just have to realize that like your body is going to ebb and flow. The seasons of the life that you're living are going to ebb and flow. You're going to have good days. You're going to have bad days. And, and I live with more good days than bad days, but it comes up, right? So like COVID hit, we were all scared of, you know, what was going to happen with COVID. And I unfortunately lost my job that I didn't, (laughs) I never thought I was going to lose my job. I thought I was safe, right? Like I thought, well, I've got like the largest client group. It's continuing to grow. And, but that wasn't in the cards for me. And so I had to, you know, move my, I I didn't have to, but I was scared. I was never going to find work again. I was the breadwinner. I, you know, knew if I moved in with my sister, at least it would be easier and we could pay some debt off and we could be okay. And living in Washington after leaving, you know, from a very traumatic experience 20 years prior has been hard for me. It's been hard for my family. I think it's been one of the hardest moves my little family unit has ever had to, to deal with. And we are finding joys in the things that we can. Um, and the girls have an awesome cheer program, which I'm so grateful, <laughs> so grateful for that. I was able to find a job, you know, with a company I really believe in. Um, and so that's been all good things. So, you know, it might look like desperation, right? You might be in this rut of like, holy crap, just lost my job. I've got four weeks of severance. I've got zero savings. Like what the fuck are we going to do? And that's where like my faith came in. I was like, God's going to take care of us. Like regardless of what's going to happen, God's going to take care of us. And we bought a house and, you know, we're able to do a lot of things, which is really cool. Um, but you have to have some sort of uh, support system. And you have to understand that like, you are the person that's going to bring you out of this. It's not like, you know, a lot of people think, well, you know, I have a savior. I have like these people that are going to save me. And it's not like you have to own that you're going to save yourself. And as, as soon as you realize that, as soon as you come to grips with like, I can make my own self calm down. I can make my own self get crazy that's empowering because now I don't have to lean on anybody else for help and assistance, right? Like I have personally a problem with being alone. I don't want to ever be alone. I always say it's because I came into this world with another person and I've never known how to be alone. (laughs) Um, But, you know, those are things that I still have to work through and it's hard work, you know, grabbing for a substance is easy. And it's hard to sit with your anxiety and your depression, but if you can do it and you can get to the other side, that's, that's really, I'm going to say it again, where the magic happens because you feel so much more empowered than you did prior. So it's, you know, it's really that adversity thing. I, I grew up very, 
a very different way than most people. And I've never been able to relate to people because who can relate to people where, you know, breaking bad was your fucking childhood. (laughs) Right. So like, that is another story we could talk about later, but, um, you know, I, I, I deal a lot with like perfectionism, like, and I think that's what happens with my anxiety is I try so hard to be perfect. I so try so hard to be like, oh my gosh, if, if I can only do these certain things, then I would be X, Y, Z, right? Like if I can only lose so much weight, I'm going to be perfect. I'm going to look like an awesome model. If I can only deal with my scars on my face from acne, I'm going to be X, Y, Z. And we have to stop living. Like we have to live in this present moment because that's all we have. And what are you doing with it? Right? Like, are you showing up for yourself to make sure that yourself is okay and you're showing up for other people or are you wasting it by sitting with your nonsense and letting your anxiety get the best of you, right? Like live your life because we have one life to live. And if you're not living it, you're wasting it. I love there's like so much acceptance in your story. Like you said the word, but like that, I almost think the turmoil that we experience because we're not accepting all of these things is like where people waste their life. <laughs> like exactly what you're just saying. And like everything like you were just talking about, whether it be your childhood, whether it be, you know, managing your anxiety and depression as an adult, like your acceptance around it is really almost like your, your freedom to these things that again, people could perceive as, you know, I don't know, like obstacles in life, but we all fucking have obstacles in life. Um, I'll also add, I really appreciate you sharing that you took time off from work too, because um, last year for me, I mean, God, I, I never maybe consciously realized or maybe never to that level, like the the depression side of it. Like I'd never gone to those lows where actually there was a point last year where like my therapist was like, we should probably refer you to a psychiatrist because like, you might like, she's like, even if you don't want to take it, cause I'm also the same, like I'm pretty resistant to taking medicine. She's like, but just like, so you have it as an option if you really need it, because there were times in 2020, like I was going on all these cool adventures, but um, like similar, I was like, I would think about them. Like, I just want to fucking jump off a cliff. I want to drive my car off a cliff. Like, I was like, I don't want to die, but you said the, the relief. And I was like, Oh God, like <laughs> as far as relatability, I was like, okay, I've never, you know, heard someone say that. Cause that's exactly what I was looking for. It was like, it was so fucking uncomfortable to be where I was. And it's like, I don't want to die, but the idea like of, this is like pretty vivid, but like I thought a lot about this in 2020 of like the idea of like jumping off a cliff. I was like, in that moment, nothing else will matter and I will be free and then it'll be done. Like there won't be any past. There won't be any future. Like the moment of jumping will be this moment of peace for me. And again, I don't want to die. Like, but that was where I was at because it's like, I don't know how to get to that moment of peace in and I was like, I was trying not to numb out and I actually like pat myself in the back. I wasn't but like when you take away all these other forms of numbing, it's just like, all right. And yeah, now let's just imagine jumping off a cliff. Um, but I'll, I'll also add the work piece. Like I, 
I mean, there was a lot of reasons why I was doing not my best work at work, but like, I didn't know how to bring that up. And I felt like I kind of talked to my manager and I'm like, I'm going through a bunch of shit. Like there's been some really like, even outside of COVID, I was going through, through some pretty big like things in my life. Um, and like, I never said it, so I don't know if they could have really given me the help I needed, but like, I didn't know how to ask for time off. Like I did like maybe once or twice and like, Hey, I'm going through something like, cause I would just like peace out. Like I couldn't, like, I couldn't handle it. And then I felt like a lot of shame around not being able to do my job well. And like, not, but also like not feeling like I could open up and, and be like, Hey, I actually need time off. So I just kind of like muddled through it. And I hearing your story now, I'm like, damn, like I probably should have asked for some time off because one, they would have probably had a better idea of like what I was going through, but like, or, and I could have taken care of myself, but like, I just had no idea how to do that or like what, I don't know. I don't want to say like my rights, but like my workers rights around it. Cause like you said, it's not like when I was at mind body, I had a concussion and it's like, okay, well I have a concussion. So I'm going to take four weeks off of work. It was like, I'm just experiencing depression and like, I can hardly get up, like see a reason to get out of bed. But that feels like such a hard conversation to like go to your manager and be like, can I take a couple weeks off of work for this? Like, even though it should be so valid, but we're not trained to be valid. So I just like kind of did a shit job at work and probably hurt the company. It definitely didn't help me because then I was feeling low worth around being a shit employee. So I appreciate your story and you sharing that. Yeah. I mean, there's a vulnerability piece that comes with this, right? So like I, I'm a reader. I want to read stuff and understand how to better myself and my family. And Brene Brown, I love her so much. Like she's probably one of the uh, many books that I've read. You know, she's wrote like a, hundreds of books or whatever, but I've read her um, Powers of Imperfection, or I think, uh, I don't know if that's right, but something in perfection, um, her Dare to Lead, which is amazing. Um, but she's got so many books coming out of the wilderness, something like that, um, where she's talking about these things that we're rumbling with. Like, you know, it took, it took me to a point where I knew my boss was super, you know, she, she had a very different lifestyle than I did growing up. Right. So not a lot of people can relate to that. And so I always felt like playing the victim card and I never want to be seen as a victim because I've gone through a lot of things and I want to be seen as a survivor. Um, but literally going into her office, bawling like a baby saying, I don't know what's wrong with me. I've never felt this way except for when I had postpartum, but I'm now feeling it more intensified, more, you know, worse than it had ever been. And just saying, I, I have to go home. If I don't go home right now, I'm not going to be able to drive myself home. And just like literally a blubbering mess. I could only imagine what she was thinking was like, holy crap, what is this woman doing? So I was like, you know, 35 years old, 34 years old, coming to a grown ass woman saying I need help. And I was desperate like that. The only reason why I went to her was because I was desperate. I had no idea what to do. I didn't want to continue to call out sick because to me, I felt shame around that. But I needed to be true to myself because I knew that if I didn't seek help in, in some fashion, I mean, I was literally ready to put myself in the mental health institute just to get some, some type of help from somebody. So I was super thankful in San Luis Obispo, they have this program at cottage, um, 
that's like an outpatient program and they help a lot with like addiction and suicide and things like that. But, you know, listening to other people's stories, almost like a AA group, you know, and, and understanding that you're not alone is, is a really, it's a really powerful piece, but there's a vulnerability to it. And if you can't be vulnerable with your leader, you know, it's hard because you're not going to get the help that you need. You're not going to, you're not going to be able to move forward because you're stuck in this space that you're scared. And, um, one of the main reasons why I went into human resources is because I want to help people. You know, I've had terrible bosses. I've had people that literally manipulated data to, um, get my husband fired. I mean, like no joke. And so I was like, you know what, let's, let's go into human resources because at least I can be an ally for these people, you know, and I've met so many amazing people that, you know, my, at my new job, there's been a couple of people that are talking about suicide and I'm like, please use this EAP, like, please seek the help that you can, because it's, it's not something that a lot of people want to talk about, but there's help out there. Um, but you know, it's, you have to be in that vulnerable space or you're just not going to get the help that you need. I appreciate that. Cause that is, like I said, I didn't ask for the help that I needed and it ended up, I mean, it worked out and I processed through it on my own, but I, things probably could have been different, but there was definitely, like you said, there's like a fear around it and there is a shame and it's just like, and then I don't think a lot of people as an employer and why I love that you are in HR and there are people out there like you, like, but I don't think a lot of people are prepared to have those conversations either. And so even as like a manager, um, and I don't think I would be if like, I'm being, I'm well, I'll give myself more credit. Like having these types of conversations is healthy. I I guess I'm having one right now, but like, you know, historically for me, if someone had come to me as a um, employee and told me this, like, I think I would be compassionate, but I don't know if we've really trained our, our managers to be able to have like a, not that they need to be your therapist or anything, but like what happens when a team member comes to you and is like, I'm struggling with like suicidal thoughts, or I am like depressed and I don't, I don't know what to do here. Like I want to do my job and I can't like, are our people equipped to handle that conversation and do it in a way that hopefully helps to diminish some of the shame that we're experiencing around it. Yeah, Janelle, that's what I was going to say is like, even if you had had the vulnerability to say something, you may not have been in a space where it could have been received. And that doesn't mean that you shouldn't. It's almost like becomes a catch 22. But at a certain point, to bring it back to like, you have to save yourself, like the buck really does stop with you. And um, it's such a good, it's such a good conversation, because so easily on that path is the invitation to just say, like, to blame or to point the finger at somebody else. And, um, yeah. Like I was excited when you were like, let's talk about this. And I was like, okay, cool. I think I got some things, but I am like walking away with even more than I thought I would. So I love that we're having this conversation. I think from your story to like having also your perspective being in HR and in the workplace is really helpful because it's, again, like people are starting to have these conversations, but I think it's also not necessarily connected back to the workplace either. It's like, yeah, I'm being vulnerable with like my husband, which is amazing too, or like friend groups. But um, I like that we're talking about the many facets and like the fact that 
you can get help. And as Rachel was starting to say too, like, even if people can't meet you there, like, don't let that stop you. Like you shared so beautifully, Megan, it's like, take, take control. And like that, there will be other jobs. There will be other places of employment. There will be other managers. Like you take care of you and the rest will work out. Yeah. And like for a final thought here, you know, if, if I could give any advice to, you know, people in the workplace, we live in a society where it's all about us, right? So like, we're always looking at out for number one, which is me. Um, and so we aren't having these conversations because they've never had to exhibit these conversations before. And with the pandemic, we've got so many more opportunities to have them that if you're a leader and you have no idea how to handle a situation because you've never experienced it yourself, you've never been exposed to it, just be open and listen. And the best advice I can give you is believe them, right? We are so skeptical as humans that we can't fathom that if people told us a story that was unbelievable to us, that we automatically do our judgment and we say that's not true that didn't happen but reality is so much more than you know so grander i think than movies that just believe them be open believe them and get them the help that they you think they need and if you don't know everybody has an employee assistance program everybody has a way of you know, uh, there's homeless shelters, there's women's shelters, there's different things out there in the community that you can just like tap into that people don't really do. But as leaders be open and believe them because that will change somebody's life. If I had gone to a leader that was open, but didn't believe me and literally told me to suck it up or something to that effect, I don't know that I would have ever experienced, you know, an outpatient program um, outside of literally just like giving everything up and quitting and, you know, doing like the worst case scenario, but she believed me and she let me take that time off. And I was super grateful for that. So we have to grow more as a society for sure. Um, but you know, this is the first step us talking about it, us being real about it, because you know, people are ashamed. They don't want to share their stories. They don't want to talk about it because they're afraid that nobody's going to talk to them again. I mean, that's a, that's a true, that's a true fear. So I'm just super stoked that you guys wanted to talk to me today and, and happy I could share my story. I appreciate it. I feel like there's, I feel like there's like going to weight lifted off of me. And I don't even think I thought, like I said, that I was like going to get that out of this conversation. And then just hearing your story and being like, oh, I'm not alone. And, and Yeah. I even just like what I'd shared with you about last year. It's like, I feel like I experienced that. And then I was like, okay, that happened. Let's just put this over here. Like, and I didn't really talk about it at all. Um, and just, yeah, hearing your story, it's relatable. It like, I know, I feel like inspiration isn't like the right word, but it is. It's just like, I appreciate so much your willingness, like Rachel said before to share because it is, it's just like, we all have shit. They'll go through shit, their shitty parts of life, like, and to know that other people have gone through it, that they've made it through that. I mean, it's not an end journey. Like we might end up back there too. Like that goes back to the acceptance piece, which I'm really taking away from your story in this conversation is just like, that helps us get 
to acceptance, acceptance that it's a part of reality and it's not good. It's not bad. It's just a part of living life sometimes. And it's okay. It might be uncomfortable, but it's okay. So thank you. We close with our last two questions. One being, how do you live your true north in one word? Um, I would say faith. Faith that it's all going to work out and faith that even if I'm at my lowest low, I'm going to get out of it. Love that. And then if people want to get a hold of you, reach out to you, ask questions, where would be a good place to do that? Um, probably Instagram or Facebook. So Instagram is hashtag the crazy says, S-A-S. <laughs> um, and then my Facebook is Megan and Jonathan say, S-A. Um, or you can, you know, send me an email. S-A, Megan, M-E-G-A-N, 0301 at gmail.com. Um, thank you so much, Megan. This yeah, is, thank you. Yeah, this has been awesome. I really, really, really appreciate it. And I love that. Like I got a deeper view into who you are, even though you are already very inspiring to me and um, just a role model. It has only expanded in this conversation. So thank Aww, you. Thank you. This has been another episode of the True North Collective podcast. For more from Rachel and I, check us out on the gram at the True North Collective underscore. And make sure you're signed up for our mailing list. You can do that at thetruenorthcollective.org to stay up to date on all of our resources, tools, and upcoming events. We appreciate you being here with us. We'll see you next time.